<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash bpshow, patreon.com slash bpshow. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Well, if you blinked, you missed it. But hey, we're reopened. Government shutdown. I'm gone. Here we are. The, the show's back. The government's back open. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. Uh, Rand Paul back at it again. On the floor, talking, 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 wouldn't shut up. You had senators saying, my goodness, can we get his neighbor over here to, you know, put him in his place a little bit? But I'm going to break this down for you because I got a text last night, I'll have you know, from a friend of the show here. I'm not going to tell you who it is. We, we, we know him. We all know him. He's He's been on the show, and he texted me, and he said, you know— I know we don't love this uh, Rand Paul, but you got to respect a guy who stands on his principle. We've said that before. I mean, I, I, I will say that about Rand Paul. He you does, too, yeah. Peter? Yes. Uh, Look, Rand Paul has been right about a couple of things. I think I'm going to leave. Rand Paul has been right about a couple the of things. The guy voted for a $1.5 trillion tax cut. That he didn't pay for, that he didn't care about paying for, because he's okay spending money on very rich people and not okay with spending money on food stamps, Peter. I stand corrected. Principle. I man has no principle. I stand corrected. You're the man right. that, has you're, no that principle. Absolutely, that is absolutely a, a valid point. But, you know, people believe that he does because he does this <laughs> 95% of the time, and then 5% right. of the time he votes for this thing. The tax, the tax law, the tax cuts, whatever you call them, and people, you know, look the other way or or, you know, or believe the point. garbage that they're going to pay for themselves, which is the excuse they use. The economy is just going to grow so much, this thing's going to pay for itself. But we'll break down the deal. We'll break down what happened last night while you were sleeping. While I was sleeping, frankly, I don't really know what happens. I'm going to need all your help. Uh, and also talk about what does it mean for dreamers moving forward, this this spending bill that they did ultimately pass last night that's now going to make its way to the president's desk did not include a solution for dreamers, those who depended on the DACA program um, and who are losing their DACA coverage, their DACA protection every single day. Where do things go from here? There's going to be a debate on the Senate floor next week around immigration, but does that have any hope? 
of solving this problem. We'll get to all of that. We'll talk a little bit about Rob Porter. He is the now former White House official, a man who abused at least three women, three women, three women that we know of, and was allowed to work in the White House for at least a year. The White House, and including the chief of staff, defended this man, defended him vigorously until pictures of uh, one of his wives with a black eye came out, and only after they caused a media firestorm was he let go. This, of course, follows a pattern of the White House absolutely refusing to believe women uh, and taking the side of these abusers. How could uh, the White House allow this man with a history of domestic abuse that they knew about work in the White House? We'll ask that question. And we'll also talk about these military parades, I guess, oh, that we're now going to have uh, walking down our neighborhoods. Uh, I don't know. I like a good parade in June, but I don't know about this uh, the <laughs> this North Korea style show, all your military might parade. But hey, the good news is it looks like Republicans on the Capitol Hill don't like it either. Anyway, uh, we'll get to all of that. But first, very quickly. Well, we're not going to have time. We're not going to have time. I talked through all of this. We've only got about 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Take a little oh, bit goodness. of a break. But I will say on the military parade, uh, there were I was encouraged by the fact that there were a couple of Republicans that came out and actually said, eh, this is not a great idea. Some of them came out and said, yes, it's a great idea. But there were some that came out and said, we don't love this idea. Well, so, maybe we'll talk about what's in the parade. Maybe you can I can be convinced to like the parade. the parade. I'm not, I want the I details the and bad. then I'll decide. I think the parade is bad. Radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right, Bill Press Show coming to you live this February 9th, I hope, 2018. The government's reopened, the show's back on, and we've got a lot to cover, both in terms of what happened last night. Rand Paul got on his feet and would not shut up, but also all of the news of the week. The White House facing another crisis in the form of a uh, domestic abuser working closely with the president in a position of power for over a year, despite White House officials knowing, of course, about his abuse. What does that mean? We will break all of that down and talk about the new spending bill that the uh, Congress passed last night. It's going to uh, pump in $300 billion in additional spending, lifting the caps that used to be in place on domestic and military spending. And we'll also fund some important progressive priorities, I got to say, like the Children's Health Insurance Program, like community health care centers. Um, so there are some good things here, but there's also some troubling pieces like eliminating the Independent Payment Advisory Board, for instance, which is a part of the Affordable Care Act, and also gutting money as part of the ACA for prevention and wellness, a bipartisan agreement, but one that Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, 
was not a very big fan of. And so he took to the House, I'm sorry, the Senate floor um, last evening, yesterday evening, and talked for some time. His argument is what you've heard him say in the past, that we should not be adding to the debt, that Congress needs to rein in spending. And apparently some people uh, in this country and even on this show believe that that <sighs> is a strong principle well, position. As, as soon as I saw, I didn't mean to interrupt, but as soon as I saw Rand Paul go to the floor and say he's going to have this speech that is going to shut things down, or that's going to stall yeah. this vote, I thought to myself, oh boy, here we go. Because what I was saying earlier is not that Rand Paul should be applauded for this. Right. Yeah, amend amend the statement earlier, Peter. No, no, Rand Paul has been right on a couple of things. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying this is one of them, but I'm saying he has been just right. Just in on general, a just in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to say okay. he's been wrong about everything. I agree. I mean, in his life, gone, on he, certain things, he's been right. One of his filibusters that he did was about the drones killing American That's right. citizens. You know what? He was right on okay. that issue. He okay. was right on that issue. Okay. Um, but my point is, he will sort of spite his own party at times to get his point across in the case of the drone thing. And yesterday, I think you made a good point. He did. I mean, you make a lot of good points. Thank you, Peter. But he did go up there and try to hold this all up, despite the fact that he voted for this huge. $1.447 trillion is how much his uh, the tax law that he voted for would add to the deficit. And you say he's willing to kind of ribbit to congressional Republican leaders at certain points in time. But I would argue not on things that actually matter, right? Like Fair he point. could have gone to the floor when they were debating the tax law and said, if you want to spend $1.5 trillion in tax cuts, pay for it. Fair point. Offset it. Totally and then I'll point. vote for it. Yeah. And he didn't do that, even though he was, you know, not the critical vote, but he was an important vote on that legislation. And that was a Republican priority. This ultimately, this spending bill, you know, so they it took them two hours longer, you know, 10 hours longer, right. I don't know, to pass it. Does it matter? I don't know. But what it does do is it gets Rand Paul a lot of media attention. It gets Rand Paul um, in front of conservative voters. It lets him send all kinds of fundraising requests because, you know, this guy ran for president once. He's probably going to want to do it again. So to me, it's really probably more of a vanity project than anything else. You're probably right. You're probably right. But I do. I will say this. Not This is not a defense of Rand Paul at all. But uh, when I, like I said, when I saw him take this stance and start going on this path, I thought to myself, oh, boy. Like, we never thought, I mean, when we finished the show yesterday, a government shutdown is something we never considered. Because it looked like they had a deal. We had the clip yesterday of Chuck Schumer saying, we have a deal. We've got a deal. Neither side is super happy with it, and that's the sign of a good compromise. Yank, yank, yank. But, like, I never thought we were actually going to see a government shut down, and we did. Yeah. The government was shut down. I mean, now we're, just, now, we're, now we're at the point where we're just waiting for Donald Trump to sign it, right? So the government is still technically shut down. And, I mean, hell, it's... Donald Trump is probably up. I don't see. I haven't seen if he's tweeted yet, but this is part of his executive time, so he's probably watching. Fox that and show Friends. right there, Fox and Friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, Rand. I often say, Peter, that Rand Paul is like Lady Gaga. He lives for the applause. 
But here he is on the Senate floor. <laughs> what? what just happened? Thank okay, you. God, that was um, nice. On the Senate floor, Rand Paul making the case that uh, we should not pass this spending bill that's going to increase spending by $300 billion over the course of two years because we have enough debt already. I hope those who look at this bill, who actually truly do believe that debt is a problem, will consider saying enough's enough and I'm not voting for more debt. Thank you. And oh, thank you. OK, so maybe he's pausing there on the floor because shortly thereafter, Angus King, who's the independent senator from Maine, explained that, look, <laughs> it's great that Rand Paul cares about the deficit today. Just I like, admit- oh, just one sec, just like Republicans for all of Obama's eight years talked about the dangers of deficit spending and insisted that everything the president uh, Obama put forward be paid for and be offset and reduce the debt like the Affordable Care Act did, by the way. And now are putting forward proposals and supporting proposals like this budget, like the tax law, like the budget President Trump is going to unveil next week that blow up the debt, that blow up the deficit, and that, frankly, are more costly than what Hillary Clinton was proposing in 2016 that they all railed against. Angus King on the floor last night calling out this hypocrisy. I admit it's not a great process, but it seems to me those who are raising that issue tonight forfeited the right to raise that issue when they voted for the tax bill, as far as I know, without a peep. Yeah. About process or about deficits. I want to ask you this, Igor, because we've talked a lot about that tax bill, right, and how this is going to be sort of the defining issue of the midterms. Absolutely. On both sides. And I think that Democrats feel like they have the high ground here and that they uh, can win this issue. And so it's I find it interesting because Democrats aren't always good at this, right, at like Act, driving a narrative, driving a narrative in a unified fashion, and like the fact Why that they brought that? the fact that they brought it back to the tax bill, I thought was really smart. Well, they have to bring it back to the tax bill and point out the hypocrisy, but they yes. also, and as Angus King did here, have to bring it back to the tax bill to point to the corruption. Yeah, right. Yeah. To point to the fact that not only was the process that Republicans went through in order to pass this tax bill insane because nobody knew what was in it when they were voting for it. And not only will this tax bill provide very large tax breaks to the very rich who don't need those tax breaks at all, but it also pays off the Republican campaign donors, particularly people like the Koch brothers who just the day before the vote gave additional donations to at least 60 members <laughs> to Uh-oh. secure their vote, some of whom voted for it, some of whom voted against it. Uh, but just the sense that 
you know, y- you could pay you could pay them off like that to push them in the right direction. The final hours is very troubling for our democracy. And someone on Twitter, I don't know if you saw this, was a couple of weeks ago now, when when all of this came out that the Cokes had not only uh, uh, did, um, did not only send these last minute donations to Republicans right before the tax vote on the eve of that vote, but that Paul Ryan also got an increase in donations right after the bill passed. Somebody said, well, it's just like what the Republicans promised. The Cokes are investing in their workers. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, that so, makes perfect but sense. But you're right about the tax bill. I mean, it's going to be a big issue in the midterm elections, and it's going to it's going to be one uh, that rep- that Democrats are going to have to focus on that this is a corrupt process that benefits the very rich, that benefits the rich Republican donors and large corporations. Because you know, on the other side, the narrative is, well, you got your uh, you know hundred extra hundred dollar bonus, yeah. so uh, you know, an extra you dollar, be happy. extra, extra dollar, dollar fifty. 50. You could get your Costco membership. No, I mean, it's so funny because the Democrats are not exactly, as we mentioned, are not exactly known for driving a narrative. They're not exactly known for having their stuff together uh, when it comes to just running as a party. And they are sort of out in the wilderness now to figure out, like, who they want to be, right? Do you want to be sort of a throwback Democrat like a... Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren where you'll actually take on... Uh, the big banks, or do you want to be like sort of a more centrist Democrat, like uh, out of Barack Obama or Joe Biden? I don't think anyone's described Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders as throwback, but I, I, well, like, no, I, I, I do, I do think that like that's what Democrats used to be. Democrats, I thought you were going to say that the throwbacks are the centrists in the model of like, uh, what's that guy from Indiana, the senator from Indiana who. Uh, ba, ba, uh, Evan Bai. Get right? out of here. Evan no, I mean, I mean throw way back. Oh, way back. I'm talking about like throwing them way back, All like right. FDR, back right? Like here. where you could stand and say, there are forces at work here in America that are undermining the American dream of people, no matter what, like where you fall. Yeah. Right? Like and a strong liberal progressive voice. A strong voice. Yeah. liberal progressive voice. And they're out there, but like Democrats seem to shy away from that. And they feel like they're too scared to go to red states and say, you know, it's going to cost money, but we're going to give you health care. And listen, if we learn. It's going to cost money, we're going to give you free college. We're going to go to college for free because that's important to us as a, sa- as a society and as a nation. And then there are centrist Democrats, you know, like Joe Biden and, and others, Cory Booger. Huh. And. Uh, who sort of feel like they can have it both ways, right? And and look, I'm I'm really not trying to dog the, the either side. I'm just saying, Democrats have to figure out where they want to go as a party. They, and the one thing that I think that they have all coalesced on at the right time is the tax thing. And it doesn't hurt that Paul Ryan and other Republicans continue to step in it. And shoot themselves on their own foot with like the dollar fifty tweet that Paul Ryan said last week, right, or, or over the this past weekend. By the way, we should mention we are so excited. Oh my God, are we excited about this budget deal? Yeah, we're so excited about the hypocrisy of the Republicans. I didn't even mention uh, that you are probably watching this at YouTube.com backslash the Bill Press Show, and if you are, we want you to subscribe. Yes. That you could interact with us on Twitter using at BP Show on Twitter or at Igor Volsky on Twitter. So if you want to weigh in 
on the grand hypocrisy that we're seeing, Republicans just on full display, and on how Democrats need to position themselves moving into the midterm elections, but also as they ooh, coalesce around the president, a, a candidate for the presidential, do tweet at us at BP Show at Igor Volsky. Uh, that's how you can kind of holler back and let us know what you're thinking and opine on everything that we're talking about. Peter, the other piece... Can I say something real quick? Just, yes. just on that note, because yes. I, I hate to keep interrupting you. But we had a great comment from our friend Phil, who, Phil. Was, who uh, was on Twitter, uh, found us at BP Show. He calls this hashtag Randstanding. Randstanding, I like it. Grandstanding, Randstanding. I like Randstanding. It's pretty good, I thought. It's pretty good. There's a lot. There's, you know, I for a while we after his presidential bid fizzled out. The randstanding was kind of at a minimum. I was happy, and now it's back. And of course, you're going to see him on all the morning shows and the Sunday shows. I'm sure talking about his great, strong, principled stance and how he's a strong conservative. And I wonder what he's going to say when they ask him about voting for that tax bill that adds 1.447 trillion dollars. To the debt, will he say, "Oh, <laughs> that will pay for itself"? I hope like they, they all ask do. Him about he probably that. will. I hope they actually ask him about that. Despite, by the way, the Congressional Budget Office and the uh, all other government economists, as well as independent economists, expressing great skepticism about that kind of calculation. But the big question for me, Peter, in this budget deal, this is a $300 billion budget deal over two years. It raises the debt ceiling past 2019, past the election. It cuts, unfortunately, I think, public health programs and the Independent Payment Advisory Board, the IPAB. Do you know about this? This is that board that was part of the ACA oh, that would right. have kicked in if Medicare spending went above a certain level. That's the board, by the way, that Sarah Palin calls called a death panel. <laughs> that goes bye-bye in this deal. It also extends the Children's Health Insurance Program by four more years. So now that program, Children's Health Care, is funded for a full 10 years and then extend some energy credits, mining safety, and a whole uh, host of other pieces. It's 600 pages long, which brings me back to Rand Paul and this question of, is he standing on principle? Because what we've already established is that Rand Paul is willing to deficit spend to provide tax cuts to very rich Americans, some of whom are his campaign donors. But what he's not willing to do, if you look at the guts of this proposal, is to deficit spend to provide health care uh, to children, to provide funding to community health centers, to provide tax breaks uh, to renewable energy that's in here, as well as mining safety. So it's really a question of priorities. What are you willing to spend your money on? And when given that choice, Rand Paul said tax cuts. To me, that is not principled at all. The other question that Nancy Pelosi raised, the Democratic leader in the House, which I think is the right one, is what is going to happen and what is happening to the dreamers? Remember, the government was shut down 
just a few short weeks ago over the fate of 800,000 young children who were brought into this country through no fault of their own by their parents who had benefited from the DACA program that President Obama enacted in September, Trump threw it out the window and gave Congress six months to come up with a solution. Since then, they have multiple times. And the president had uh, walked away from those negotiations and walked away from this deal. Nancy Pelosi this morning pointing out that this isn't a partisan issue, that members on both sides of the aisle actually want to find a solution. We do know that the DREAM Act has support on both sides of the aisle, and we thank our Republican colleagues, those who have spoken out publicly uh, for their courage in supporting this, this protection. So how can a deal in an issue that Republicans support, that Democrats support, that if you look at polling, 80% of Americans support, including Trump voters, and that is allowing these dreamers to stay in this country, to eventually become citizens of this country, to continue contributing to this country, both in terms of skills and education. How can we not find a solution uh, to the just incredibly painful situation that they now find themselves in, the uncertainty within which they live, not knowing what their fate holds next week, next month, next year. Because right now there's no clear path. There's going to be a debate next week on the floor. That's that Senate debate, you'll remember, that Mitch McConnell promised Democrats in order to come back from the last shutdown. But it's going to be an open amendment process. And so you're going to have Republicans throwing in all kinds of poison pills in there. So there's no clear sense of how that's going to turn out. There's no guarantee that that's going to produce any kind of bill that members of Congress are going to be able to support. And that doesn't even bring us to the House where, you know, despite Nancy Pelosi's best efforts, Paul Ryan still refuses to guarantee any kind of vote on Dream, despite saying every chance he gets, oh, I support, I support it. I support it so much. <laughs> but if he just put it on the floor, it would pass because enough, even though the Republican caucus doesn't support it as a whole, that there are these crazy conservatives out there who would rather deport these 800,000 kids who've contributed and grown our economy than have, him, have them here, that if he were to put a deal that extends protections to this population and pairs it with border security, there would be enough votes to pass it. He just refuses to do so. And he's refused to provide any commitment to Pelosi uh, that he would take up that question in the House. And so, Peter, they are in complete peril. There's n no clear pathway of solving this issue, and it feels like it's just going to become another midterm issue that Congress isn't willing, isn't able to solve. I give Nancy Pelosi a lot of credit. Me too. Uh, the other day for her uh, record-breaking speech about this because, you know, Democrats should be owning this issue. They should be the one leading the way on this issue. And I know that they're out of power 
and there's only so much you can do. But Democrats for the longest time have made the argument that they are going to stand for dreamers, for the downtrodden, for uh, Latinos uh, who feel uh, sort of disenfranchised by the government in general. And um, gosh, you know, it just looks terrible at this point where, like you said, everybody's just sort of in limbo again. And what they've and, done here, frankly, is given up a lot of leverage. Yeah, that, that, that's both the in other terms thing. of you can't attach a dream extension to or a DACA, a DACA fix, a, the dream bill to any sort of must pass legislation because this agreement solves for that problem. Right. So it's going to have to be a standalone bill. And can a standalone bill pass the current Congress? That's. Very no, uncertain. I don't think so. And again, I think that, you know, so many people are are, are hanging their hopes on a midterm win uh, in the House and the Senate for Democrats. And gosh, I hope that happens. And I think everybody should be, you know, uh, working to make that happen. But like between now and November is a long time for ICE agents to continue to do what they're doing. And we've seen horrifying, heartbreaking stories. Yeah. From these fascist pigs that are ICE agents rounding up people who have been here for decades. For decades, for 40 years. There's a story about a veteran, a military veteran, who went and served his country in war, who is getting deported because he's a dreamer. And that's, that's who we are as a country these days. And that's disgusting. No matter where you fall in the political aisle, I don't care. I don't care if you think that illegal immigration is a problem or dreamers are a problem. That should never, ever, ever happen. And we're going to get several more months of that at best. Yeah. At uh, best, best case scenario. And listen, and you you, you think about the, the politics of this and you think about how it impacts not just the undocumented population, but... The Latino community at large, because it's, you know, it's not like there's a building that all the undocumented DACA folks uh, or undocumented or DACA folks live in. And so you just go to that building. When you do these raids, you disrupt entire communities that are of mixed legal status and it creates shockwaves within the entire community. Those communities, members of whom many of whom are voters need to see their progressive leaders fighting for them. That's the only thing that's going to matter. And Pelosi, you know, continued that effort a couple of days ago uh, when she stood on the House floor for eight hours. That's a good start. But, you know, if Democrats want to want to win this thing, want to turn out their base, they have to continue doing that, especially now when all of the wins are going to have to be rhetorical because there's just no clear path forward on this issue. Yeah. By the way, really quickly, I'm uh, going to take a break. I want to read some questions or some comments from Twitter. Uh, Phil weighs in again. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Rand justifies voting for the tax cuts because they're, quote, not spending. Right, of course. And Rand is supposedly violently against government spending. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate that comment. Also, Igor. So many people have come out to talk about how handsome you are. Oh, oh, that's so nice. Well, thank you. Oh. I did a new hair thing this morning. I know. I yeah. noticed. Paying off. I noticed. It's really paying I off. I wasn't the only one who noticed. Uh, uh, Thomas uh-huh. Meggs just writes, handsome. Uh, 
Thomas, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Say more. Go on. Aaron tweets with just several of the heart eye emojis. Oh. Like the little uh, face with uh, the hearts for the eyes. People are too kind. So people are... Um, people are too kind. They're quite smitten. Yeah, well, you know, did a new hair gel, did a new blow dry thing. You know, try trying something new. Yeah. This morning. I hesitate to read those audience. comments because it will only make more people comment. But, you know, give the people what they want. Exactly. Igor, I appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. More Bill Press Show after this. At Igor Volsky on Twitter, at BP Show. We will be right back. Same great show. New great channel. Stream live video at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right. The Bill Press Show on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And while you're there, just hit that subscribe button. And also, we'd love to hear from you in that chat there on YouTube on the right side, right? And also on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show on Twitter. I'm Addy Gorvolsky on Twitter. Would love to uh, have you interact with us as we break down what the heck happened last night on the Senate floor. Rand Paul taking um, hours, really, to complain about the spending bill, a bipartisan two-year measure that uh, both parties agreed to, thought they were going to vote on, but they didn't get to do that until the early hours of this morning. Joining me now in studio is Connor O'Brien. He's the defense reporter for Politico on Twitter at Connor O'Brien NH because he's from New Hampshire. Connor, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's break down first what this deal entails, the major pieces of this deal, and then mm -hmm. we'll talk about maybe... Rand Paul. Sure. So this is, uh, people have been calling it a $300 billion budget deal. Uh, what it does is it raises caps that are on the budget for defense, for the Pentagon, uh, the military, and for all other domestic programs. Uh, so... Uh, and these are Obama-era yeah. caps that were put in yeah. place in 2010, was 20, it? 2010, 2011. So to go back just a couple of years, uh, conservatives, back to those years. conservatives ride in in 2010 on a wave of, uh, of anti-deficit kind of angst. And so there is this movement to curtail spending. What they agree to, what Boehner agrees to with Obama and others are these are these caps what happens is uh something called sequestration these automatic cuts so the defense budget and others other agencies go down uh and they've been under these caps for the last uh i guess seven years uh but congress really hasn't lived by them they've made uh several deals over the last few years uh, usually two-year deals to raise those caps so each year the pentagon will get a little bit more money than they thought they would domestic agencies also would get a little bit more money than they thought they would. This one is big. This one just blows it wide open. $300 billion, uh, the majority of that is for the Pentagon. So this year, the Pentagon would get $80 billion more than the law actually allowed, another 85 next year. All the other domestic agencies would get uh, in the low 60s this year and another, I believe, 68 uh, next year. Now, the, the bill also includes... Uh, 90 billion in disaster aid. So for Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, um, and uh, then there's a, then there are a bunch of other provisions. You know, extending some tax breaks, uh, lifting the debt ceiling for another year, and then of course it opens the government back up Ooh. after that uh, after that five six hour shutdown. <laughs> now, give us a sense of what this 80 billion dollars that's going to the Pentagon. What will the Pentagon be spending that money on? Uh, so. 
Right now, what we only know is the broad outlines. Uh, Congress is going to determine that over the next six weeks. Basically, what this deal does is it gives them the framework to move forward with, with a funding bill. Uh, so for the next six weeks, the government will be open uh, until the 23rd of March. So in that time, uh, the appropriations committees are going to get to work. Uh, they, <clears throat> excuse me, they have done many of their bills already, at least released them. They just haven't passed them, you know, part of the problem here. Uh, and so they'll put together what's called an omnibus, all 12 uh, full-year spending bills that fund the government for the rest of the year. And so um, for, for defense within that, uh, the House Armed Services Committee passed a defense policy bill at the end of the year last year that kind of outlines what they want to do with some of that extra money. They want to expand the size of the Army, uh, build more ships in the Navy, buy more more fighters, uh, and, um, you know, put more into training and maintenance. So really these defense increases have been led from the Hill, I, I would say, more than the Trump administration, even though they've been an advocate of it. Um, but they actually submitted a defense budget that was below what Republicans on the Hill wanted for defense. Why are Republicans pushing for more? Uh, well, you know, I, there's there's the political aspect of this. They've been wanting to build up the military and they saw Donald Trump's election. Uh, you know, he came in, you know, using conservative talking points about the military, building up the military. Uh, and they thought that was their opportunity after years of getting pushback from the Obama administration. Um, and, you know, the practical effect, though, is, you know, and, and you hear this every time you talk to members of the Armed Services Committee is uh, there are major readiness issues in the military. Uh, the 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 fact the stat that um, that they often cite is that there were 80 training deaths last year and that's nearly four times the number of uh, deaths in combat um, in the military um, so there are readiness issues that the Pentagon has expressed concern about uh, training maintenance you know um, there were there were a couple very deadly ship collisions uh, over the summer that that uh, some are linking to a lack of training. Um, you know, um, it's, it's so so basically what they're what they're arguing this extra money will be able to do is to get the military to start reclaiming that that training and maintenance and also expand to meet, you know, kind of these world threats, Russia and China and terrorism, that sort of thing. Are some of these Republicans who are, sending more money to the Pentagon than the Pentagon requested, the same Republicans who are very concerned about the deficit and deficit spending. Yes. Um, uh. Heard it Heard it from Armed Services Republicans uh, recently, uh, ones and, that I've talked to. And talk when you point it, that you know, out to them, what do they say? Um, you know, that there are... That that their their argument would be that defense is not driving the deficit. Uh, that if you zeroed out the defense budget, it, we would still have a deficit. Um, you know that said, this is not going to go down as a as a fiscally conservative Congress. Uh, a tax cut that cost a trillion and a half dollars. Um, you know this this budget deal will add several hundred billion dollars to the deficit. A lot of emergency spending for the disasters, which you know. Is, I know, yeah, and and folks aren't really arguing about the about the need for that, yeah. but it does add to the deficit. So, uh, you know, this is 
this this Congress is not going down for for a track record of fiscal conservatism, fiscal responsibility. Uh, well, the other piece in this budget deal, this $300 billion two-year budget deal, the framework that you described, that su- didn't surprise me, didn't shock me, but in this question of, oh, we have a problem with spending, that maybe it's not defense that's driving spending, maybe it's these entitlement programs, as they call them, Medicare, Medicaid, that that's the real problem. We need to solve for that. We need to rein in that spending. But if that's the case, then why are conservatives supporting the repeal of the Independent Payment Advisory Board, the IPAB, a piece of the Affordable Care Act that was supposed to kick in if Medicare spending went above a certain limit? Now, it's controversial on both sides of the aisle. It has not been staffed with the folks who are supposed to be on it. It's never kicked in. But there is this tension between... Um, having policies that do try to claw back some of that spending, at least limit its growth, and Congress then, for political reasons, and Sarah Palin did this for IPAB, framing it as a death panel in order to, you know, malign the health care law, now they got rid of it, so it will never go into effect, and then they will turn around tomorrow and tell us how concerned they are about this out-of-control Medicare spending. Feel that it just feel you know it fills me up with both rage, uh, rage toward against their hypocrisy is what I would say. And you know I think I think it's I think it's it's been it's been interesting to watch you know uh, how how fiscal fiscal conservatism is a little bit in the eye of the ball. <laughs> yeah, a you little know, bit. It's, um, we're, we're really you know, a relative term <laughs> is what we're learning. <laughs> Connor Brown, he's the defense reporter for Politico, and he's also been covering. This urge, this desire that our president has for a military parade, for a military parade in the style of, I guess, the French parade is what he was inspired by, right, when he was to, over to, there. To uh, reportedly to top that. To, oh, to top that. Right. Now, you know, to me, I, I have I got to admit, I have not spent a lot of time thinking about should we have a military parade, should we not have a military parade, but I'm sure it fits into this previous conversation we were having about debt and deficit spending in terms of how much this is going to cost. So let me maybe start there. Are there estimates for how much Trump's military parade would cost? I will say I have not seen mm-hmm. any. Or like broadly any... speaking, are there ranges so, that are being thrown so out there? So to, to, give, to give some perspective, the last time there was kind of one of these big military parades where there was kind of a, a show of, of, of military, um, uh, you know, of military might, I guess, uh, you know, uh, is 1991, right after very decisive victory in the Gulf War. Uh, the George H.W. Bush administration did one. It was here in Washington, D.C., um, it included, you know, uh, armored vehicles, tanks, 800,000, um, I'm sorry, 8,000 uh, <laughs> soldiers marched in it. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was, it was not that big. Uh, but um, uh, I believe, and I, and I read some of the, the, the media reports from the time, uh, I believe the cost wound up being around $12 million, with about... Seven million of that uh, being shouldered by the Pentagon, mm. uh, and I believe that was above what they had estimated the cost would be. And uh, you know, uh, there some folks have pointed uh, pointed out some things that are going to cost some money if you want to actually have military hardware 
in a parade in the nation's capital, you'd have to pay to ship in, say, Abrams tanks, which are, you know, which are very big, require very complex logistics, you know, um, and so, um, you know, so so I think I think it's a, you know, it's it's an interesting question, particularly when there. Are, so many concerns about military training, military readiness. Does the Pentagon have enough money to to properly accomplish the the missions that it needs to do? I mean, if they can't properly train the men and women in the in the armed forces, or at least having some trouble doing that, diverting them with preparing for a military parade to please Donald Trump feels like may not be the best decision. Summarize for me the argument for this parade like what and who are the people who are making that case is it just donald trump or are congressional republicans uh, behind this idea well i think the i think the the argument um and i think you've heard this from from the white house um who, who essentially confirmed the report that he requested that they at least look at the options uh for for a parade um you know, is is it would it would you know, it's it's uh it's kind of a it's a patriotic thing. It's a um, it's a thing that would show appreciation for the military. Um, you know, I think I think there there are some who are on board with that sentiment, but you know the 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 backlash you did see was pretty was pretty uh, was was you know pretty pretty swift and very much in the in the in the vein of. This is this is not what countries like the United States do. We don't we don't we don't show military might on the streets. You know that's what that's what Russia, China, you know North Korea do. Uh, that that said, um, I, I I wonder if if you know and this this involves this parade happening, which I think is I think is an open question. But um, you know I just wonder if it could in fact be a hit. And the, and there might be some folks who look too reflexively anti-Trump. I would just that's that's the that's the that's the one well, thing. Well, one I would of just those one out. of those folks here might be Congressman Adam Smith of Washington. He's the top Democrat on the mm-hmm. Armed Services Committee, a man you know well, I'm sure, who yes. said of the parade to Politico, "quote A military parade of this kind would also be a departure from the values of our constitutional democracy." We are a nation of laws, not of one person. In the past, we would have held military parades to celebrate major national events, such as the Gulf War or the end of World War II, as achievements by the American people who fought in and supported those efforts. A military parade like this, he says, one that is unduly focused on a single person, Trump, is what authoritarian regimes do, not democracies. Is that the, the general um, argument against having this kind of parade? That it's simply there's something n- not American about it. A little bit, and that that it sends the wrong message to to U.S. allies, and uh, that it 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 doesn't that countries that have this kind of military strength strength do not need to show it, um, and also and also things like how much is how much is this going to cost. You know, is it going to tear up the is it going to tear up the streets in D.C.? <laughs> could right. you imagine? Could you imagine what conservatives would be saying? Republicans would be saying Fox News would be saying if Barack Obama wanted to have a military parade of this kind of magnitude, 
could you i it's hard for me to picture like waking up in that world they would be calling him an authoritarian uh, you know dictator who's trying to uh, you know kind of paint the military in his image and that that is this is actually disrespectful to the armed forces uh, and what a different world we we live in today but the 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 military parade that Trump wants it it is now it feels like according to these reports the preparations are underway now Pentagon says they're they're looking at it they haven't given many specifics but um the 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 talk is that from from what they've said and from what the White House said is in the very early stages of planning um it is interesting that they use the word uh planning and the but the uh Defense Secretary Mattis uh, did say at the White House they're going to give him some options. So uh, I'll be interested to know what those options are uh, and what what it what it turns out to be. One of the options is to hook it to the what is it 100th anniversary of the end of World War One, which I guess we should celebrate. But I don't know if we should do it with a parade. Um, well, there you go. There, <laughs> there you have it. We might we might have a parade suit in this. You know, you could also from the from if if you're Trump, right? This is like a very Trumpian thing to do to have a parade like this. But it's also and the a point you made earlier that I want to return to that this could be a hit with the American people. It could be a hit in terms of the spectacle it would create. Mm-hmm. It could be a hit with the kind of imagery that it could generate for Trump and how it could portray Trump as the leader of this great, these great forces, which is something, of course, he craves, as we know, that kind of, uh, um, that kind of, I guess, feel. We know about his love for his generals, as he calls them. Is this, do you think, to some degree then, a political move, a political play ahead of the midterms, moving into his reelect, that he's really, to some degree, and I'm sure that if, again, the tables were turned, this is what the other side would be saying about Obama, that he is in some way using these military forces for political ends to help in possibly the midterms, if that's when this parade happens, or after to help with his reelect. I mean, I think it's... I think it's certainly a, 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 a fair question to ask when you're talking about uh, a spectacle as as big as as big as this could potentially be, um, and and one that might cost as much as you know it could. I mean, you know, but um, uh, I guess we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see if this ha- if this happens. Let me too. ask you quickly about um, the dreamers who are serving in the military, because, you know, we've been having this, not you and me, but the nation mm-hmm. have been having this conversation about, well, what happens to these young immigrants who had DACA status, who are now losing this status, about 122 uh, are, each day are losing this status since President Trump ended the program in September and Congress seems unable to come to any kind of solution to extend it or to pass a DREAM Act. A good number of those, and I'm, I'm curious if you know how many uh, DREAM uh, DACA recipients 
serve in the military, but they're there. Uh, Mattis, the defense secretary, said the other day that they would not be deported. Is that right? Uh, I don't know the number offhand, uh, but this, you know, this has been uh, this has been an issue that that I've. Uh, that, that has come up in 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 Congress before the status of 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 uh, of undocumented uh, immigrants in the in the military, you know, for several years. But um, yes, yeah, so uh, he told he told reporters at the Pentagon uh, this week that he had he he would he had ex- you know he had had this conversation with the Secretary of Homeland Security and that he would he came out and pledged that that would not happen if you're active. Uh, your active duty, if you're active reserve, or if you sign papers to essentially go to boot camp, um, and I believe he also, um, I believe he also put in that uh, veterans who have been honorably discharged. Mm. So would that then create a pathway for current dreamers who have uh, an uh, a current DACA status that is still. A, a clear status if they're on track to losing that status because they lose status on a rolling basis depending on when they apply for it in the first place would they then be able to join the military to avoid losing that status and possibly be subject to deportation would that be a possibility under what Mattis is proposing that if you enlist and go to boot camp then you're protected from deportation. Is that right? So, so the the way I, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll stress that I wasn't there, but the way I read his comments was that if you've if you've signed the papers already, um, you know what this means for the for the future. Um, I I think is I think it's hard to tell, but essentially the way the way I read his comments were if you're actively serving, reservist, been discharged honorably, and are and are a veteran, uh, or if you've if you've already joined, um, you know for the for the future, I think that's I think that's a uh, I think that's a fair question. And one other thing before we let you go, and this is something that I think keeps a lot of us up at night. I'm sure you're concerned about, and that is the situation with North Korea. Mm-hmm. This administration's policy towards North Korea. We are, of course. On, uh, uh, I guess the opening ceremonies may be happening now or about to happen. Uh, the those games happening, of course, in, in South Korea with North Korea participating. And reports coming out last week that this administration may be considering a bloody nose strike against North Korea. The theory of which being you do some magnitude of attack to kind of signal to the North that you are serious. But you don't go all the way and like try to topple their regime or destroy their nuclear capabilities. Um, there's been a bi- uh, I don't know if it's bipartisan, maybe it's just Democrats who wrote a letter to the administration earlier this week, right, telling the president you have no authority to do this. But the interesting wrinkle, and this is going to have to be quick because we're out of time, is that the Trump's ambassador to South Korea last week was taken out of consideration late in the game because there were reports, and I think he wrote about this, that he opposed this kind of military action. So how close are we to considering something like this, and how serious is the administration? I think it's, I think it's hard to say, uh, but um, it, is, uh, it, it was very interesting to see that, the, the, <laughs> that their, their 
pick for ambassador who hadn't officially been nominated, I don't think, was taken out of, you know, was taken out of the process for it. Um, I would say that um, I, don't, I can't speak for Republicans on the Hill, but Chuck Hagel, former Obama defense secretary, mm. also criticized that approach, the bloody nose strategy where you hit them first and assume that they won't hit back. Um, and so that's at least one Republican right there. <laughs> oh, oh, Chuck Hagel is who you're is who you're quoting. Oh, so that makes us. But do, is there a sense in the Pentagon that the North Korean regime would be able to tell the difference between a bloody nose strike and an all out ag- ag- aggressive strike that's that goes beyond that? Like that's the argument, right? Quickly. Yeah, I think that's. I think there's a very tough. That's that's. I think that's a major concern. Right, for Con- that, Connor O'Brien, he's the defense reporter for Politico on Twitter at Connor O'Brien. NH, because he's from New Hampshire. I'm Igor Volsky. This is the Bill Press Show. Uh- this is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing, if you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the bill press show live at youtube.com slash the bill press show that's right we got it all here on the bill press show on this friday february 9th 2018 if you're waking up don't worry government is still open bill press show is on the air everything is as it should be by the way i'm igor volsky filling in for bill press on twitter at igor volsky and of course you can reach us at bp show because we always do really, really want to hear from you. Now, we will get to all of the latest from the uh, Senate floor last night. Rand Paul's grandstanding the budget deal that they did pass and President Trump is expected to sign this morning. All of that and more. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. I have a sad story. Oh, sad story Not here. a funny story. But it is a sad story. So there is a woman by the name of Belen Aldacosa. She is flying home from Baltimore to South Florida. She's 21 years old. She's a college student. She's flying home. Now, she flew on Spirit Airlines. Oh, I did that the other week. On Spirit? I don't ever fly Spirit. It's not the greatest, the greatest alive. Well, you're not going to like Spirit, especially after I tell you this story. Because this woman, Belen, she called Spirit and said, I need to bring my emotional support animal my dwarf hamster by the name of Pebbles. Pebbles. So, Spirit Airlines told her, it's fine, bring Pebbles, no problem, bring Pebbles, it's all oh, good. No. Oh, so they no. got to the airport and they go, oh, you can't bring Pebbles on the airplane. You're going to have to flush Pebbles down the toilet. What? 
Say what? what? That's what they told her to do when she showed up at the airport with Pebbles. They told her, you're going to have to flush the hamster down well, the toilet. Why not tell her you have to leave, take him home? Well, the, we'll put well, her in a well, lighter she, flight. It, I mean, I can come up with a solution. She had to go home for a family emergency. It was important that she get on this plane. She tried to rent a car. She couldn't rent a car. So she flushed Pebbles. Here comes PETA. She flushed Pebbles. Yeah. Stop it. She, I'm dead serious. She flushed Pebbles. So the airlines are saying that they never told her to flush. She said that she that they told her to flush. So now Pebbles is no longer with us, and she is she has this beef with Spirit Airlines. So here's what happened. Go ahead. A, a Spirit employee says, "I am called to serve. Yeah. I'm going to serve. I'm going to take Pebbles and and have him for some period of time." And you go to your family emergency, and then we will meet up at a place of our mutual convenience, or you will come to me, and I will give you the pebbles. But somebody could have taken pebbles. You don't have to kill pebbles. Well, they had to kill pebbles. She killed pebbles. She flushed pebbles. I don't at I don't, the at the request of Spirit Airlines. Spirit so, has no spirit. So that's yeah, the kind I of spirit that, that Spirit has. A crappy spirit. Uh, moving on to Death a better spirit. story. Moving on to a to a better story. You like Dunkin' Donuts coffee? I love it. It's my favorite coffee, but just with a little bit of cream. Look how happy you are. I, I love Dunkin' Donuts you, coffee. It, I wish I had some here. What is this? Is my coffee no good? Is my, I made that coffee. Do you need I more? know you didn't. I'll make you okay, some more. thank you. Anyway, Dunkin' Donuts says they are getting rid of all of their styrofoam cups. That's one of the reasons I don't oh. like Dunkin' Donuts, uh, is they usually serve them oh, in styrofoam right. yes, cups. Yes. Uh, well, they said that they are going to get rid of all their styrofoam cups by the year 2020. They will be double-walled paper cups. No more styrofoam. It's amazing okay. to think that there are they're still, still people out it, there that are still, still using it. styrofoam. But I have Dunkin' Donuts almost every morning because it's right from my walk to my apartment to my job. It's right on the way. Okay. And I get it with just a little bit of cream, medium size. This was, this was what really blew my mind. No donuts. Uh, they said that once they do this, they will eliminate one billion foam cups from the waste stream wow. annually. They sell one billion styrofoam cups annually? It's Is that popular. right? Could it's that be very possible? popular. You know, there's now a new Dunkin' Donuts kind of branch that's just called Dunkin' that doesn't have the donuts. Have you heard of this? No, it, really? They're trying it out in, in Massachusetts now. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts is fine. Dunkin' is fine. I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee. It's just like, del- it's like you want to eat it. It's a like delicious, delicious coffee. You want to eat the coffee? Just a little bit of cream. Just eat the coffee just ground. A little, just a little bit of cream. On TV and online, this is the Bill Press Show. So I Bill Press Show on this Friday, February 9th of 2018. Hey, listen, government's back open. Uh, it just shut down for just a couple of hours after Rand Paul threw his uh, biannual fit or whatever it is, complaining about deficit spending. Of course, as I've been pointing out to you guys, this is the same Senator Rand Paul, who voted to increase the debt by $1.447 trillion when he supported the tax law. But here he is last night on the Senate floor explaining why he is taking the stand, why he's preventing Congress from voting on a bipartisan 
budget deal that would increase spending by $300 billion over two years. Rand Paul says it's because we've had enough debt. Will also allow us to step off this carousel of short-term funding. That's that's Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan supports the deal I'll mention here, despite spending years worrying and complaining about deficit spending. It's actually part of a pattern that Republicans in Congress have uh, recently adopted that, you know, just so happens that when President Obama is in office, they're very concerned about the deficit and the debt and demand that everything be paid for. Now, of course, meh, it's fine. So here's Rand Paul raising some concerns. I hope those who look at this bill, who actually truly do believe that mm. debt is a problem, will consider saying enough's enough and I'm not voting for more debt. Thank you. Well, nobody considered that, and they voted uh, in favor of this measure early this morning. So it really just delayed everything by a couple of hours. The government closed down for a little bit, and now the measure is uh, moving to the president's desk where he's going to sign it. He's going to keep the government open and set up a framework for a new spending agreement that increases the budget caps by some $300 billion over two years, increasing spending to the military, actually more than the military requested, but also funding some progressive priorities like the Children's Health Insurance Program and community health centers. And with me now to talk all about that is my great colleague, Rebecca Vallis. She's the host of Off Kilter, of the Off Kilter podcast, and also uh, uh, my friend at the Center for American Progress. She's on Twitter, by the way, at Rebecca Vallis. Rebecca, good morning. So good to see you. Igor, so you're having me on to talk about that. My uh, God, that in all capital letters. What is it we're talking about? Well, look, I love that you're wearing black because I think what you're mourning is the death of Republicans being concerned about the deficit. Because those days are clearly over. They have just voted for a budget that would increase the deficit significantly, that would blow through the caps that they put in place in 2010. Now, it's not going to surprise us because back in December, they already supported a tax law that added $1.447 trillion uh, to the debt. Well, and Igor, I think that's a, that's the more important part here, right? I mean, I woke up this morning and I'm looking at all the headlines and you've got the entire New York Times front page. It's all about how all of a sudden people seem to be noticing that Republicans don't care about the deficit that they used to <laughs> tell us they hated so much. Uh, it's not exactly news. So I feel like maybe folks in the news industry would be wise to have noticed yeah. this when Republicans were the ones single handedly ramming through their partisan tax bill to give huge tax cuts to the wealthy and corporations blowing $1.5 trillion into the deficit, a huge hole in the deficit. Um, that was the moment where I think we realized they hate the deficit. Now what they were actually doing was in a rare moment of of trying to uh, actually govern, working with Democrats uh, across the aisle to, to keep the government open, right? So to me, actually the story about last night was Rand Paul standing up and being a huge hypocrite because all of a sudden he, came, he cares about deficit deficits when he didn't when he voted for the tax bill. Yeah, this is this is a point I think we need to underline and underscore. I was telling Peter in the last hour, and by the way, you should have been here, because I, I tell Peter the story. 
that I am ready to go to bed. You know, I have to go to bed early to wake up early for this show because I'm a good host, okay? And I get this text from a mutual friend of all of ours, and he says to me, you know, Rand Paul is, like, really problematic, but you got to praise the guy for standing on principle. And as I was about to just emote anger at this point, Peter, who was sitting right where you are, said, yeah, that's right. Uh, Rand Paul is, is I mean, it's, he's more like this. Rand Paul is very, is very principled. And, you know, you got to sometimes recognize that Rand Paul is, has, has this principle. And I, I had to scream at him. Rand, just what you said, Rand Paul had no problem voting for a tax bill to give tax cuts to very rich people that increase the deficit by some $1.5 trillion, because really, it comes down to priorities, right? So in that case, he had no problem giving tax cuts to very rich people that increase the deficit. But in this budget deal that does things like fund the children's health insurance program or fund community health centers or help veterans or help veterans or help with the opioid crisis that's the kind of spending that he's against but giving dollars to very rich people that he's for that's his principle that's the principle that he stands for no that's exactly right so i think it's really important that we not be giving rand paul too much credit here right i mean the the time to be serious about deficits was when republicans were ramming through their partisan tax bill he didn't seem to care then at least not enough to vote against that legislation um and and now he's turning around and in a show of great uh drama right made for house of cards shutting down the government for six hours so he could stand there and not read green eggs and ham that one had already been yeah. done uh by his dear friend from texas um but but to to stand there on what seemed like principle in hope of some headlines and some puff pieces because apparently people in the media do have two short memories to realize what actual principle would have looked like for him. Now, the other deficit hawk that uh, we are very uh, familiar with is Speaker Paul Ryan, who spent his career as the chairman of the House Budget Committee complaining about the deficit and telling us that it's the biggest national security threat we face, it's the biggest threat we face to our economy. Here he is yesterday proclaiming his support for the deal because he argued it's going to help us bring stability to the government. This agreement will also allow us to step off this carousel of short-term funding bills that do nothing but hurt our military and stymie our ability to focus on other important agenda items. I guess it's just a coincidence that when President Obama was president, everything not only had to be paid for, but it had to reduce the deficit. And people forget that the Affordable Care Act, our favorite law, <laughs> wasn't only paid for fully, but it also reduced the deficit. And now we're in a place in Washington, D.C., where these conservatives are happy to 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 blow past uh, these caps without paying for them at all, without paying for any of it, and are happy, as, as our last guest, uh, Connor O'Brien, defense reporter for Political, pointed out, send more money to the Pentagon than the Pentagon even asked for. We're like in crazy town here. We are, but I, I think the thing that we need to not lose sight of, right, is actually the longer game here, right? So last night was a bunch of drama, and and so, well, you actually you didn't even finish your own story, Igor. Did you stay up and watch the shutdown and, oh, and the grandstand? No, 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 you were the good host instead. Uh, exactly, I slept, and <laughs> now I know nothing. 
<laughs> you slept. Good for you. Yeah. I didn't stay up and watch it either because I knew it was pointless drama and it was Rand Paul trying to get headlines. But but here we are. I think what we actually need to be doing is looking past this this single moment in time. Yeah. What's the big play here? We have to actually see how this connects to broader things. So the uh, what we know is coming next week is actually going to be hugely important, and that is going to be another moment where we're talking about the budget, but it's in a very different context, and that's because President Trump is going to be releasing his next budget proposal. He's going to be releasing that on Monday is what what we're hearing. It's on my calendar. It's on my calendar, too, Igor. Could slip. Who knows? We we, we know they're a, a well-oiled machine, this administration, <laughs> so <laughs> obviously everything running just as they expect. Um, I'm, we'll put my snark aside. So Monday, we're expecting this budget to come out. A lot in the, a lot of folks in the media are going to say, eh, what does this matter? It's DOA. It's not legislation. It isn't actually going to become law. Yeah, why should we care? Why but should we, we care? absolutely need to care, and here's why. Because that budget blueprint is going to be the statement of not just President Trump's, but the entire Republican Party's priorities for this country. And, and more to the point, it's going to be a roadmap for how they want to pay for the huge hole that they just blew in the deficit with their tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires and wealthy corporations. And why does that matter now that we've got this budget deal and everyone's saying, ah, eh, that's going to be a, a done thing? Well, it matters because Speaker Paul Ryan and President Trump seem not to have learned any lessons from last year where they spent the better part of 2017 trying to take health care away from tens of millions of Americans all to pay for their tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations. They seem not to have learned the lesson that the American people were trying to tell them, which was, we don't want you to take away our health care. We don't want you to slash Medicaid. Instead, what they're quietly doing is doubling down on that incredibly unpopular cut, cut, cut agenda. Um, and that's what we're going to see them trying to do throughout the rest of this year and leading up to the midterms. That's a little bit of kind of what's being argued about among Republicans right now, because you're seeing Leader McConnell in the Senate say, whoa, 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 I don't want to go near popular programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all the things that we know would be stupid to cut in an election year. But you got Paul Ryan going, oh, actually, I think if we just rebrand our cuts, we'll be able to get away with this. And that's what we're going to start watching play out with the release of Trump's budget next week. Now, you have a poll out that shows that large majorities of Americans actually oppose these kinds of policies, either kind of overtly going after Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security or doing so in sneaky ways. And it's not just Americans generally who oppose this, but also Republican voters who have a problem with it. That's exactly right. So pe your listeners may be and viewers may be familiar with the term third rail. Medicare, Social Security, people for a long time have considered those to be the, the so-called third rail of American politics in that they are so beloved and so popular across party lines uh, that cutting them is political suicide and that elected officials actually will run away from the implication that they're trying to cut those programs because they know that's a political loser for them. Well, new polling that the Center for American Progress commissioned um, actually finds it's not just Social Security and Medicare that are the third rail. Medicaid is right there along with those programs. 80% of Americans oppose cutting Medicaid, and that extends across party lines, as you noted, to Republicans, even to Trump voters. They don't want to see Medicaid cut. Um, and, and guess what? It doesn't stop with Medicaid. It also extends to all the programs that Paul Ryan is trying to smear us 
so-called welfare, whether that's affordable housing, whether that's nutrition assistance, Meals on Wheels, programs that help uh, seniors afford their heating bills, all the kinds of programs that Speaker Paul Ryan and President Trump are targeting um, because they think that they're going to be easy to slash to pay for those tax cuts for millionaires and corporations that they already passed on party lines last year. Those are actually so popular that if they do decide to head down this path, um, they're going to have a, a bit of a reckoning in November. Um, and that's part of actually why we did this poll. I mean, as you point out, as we learned, if we learned anything from the year that was, it's that when you try to take away people's benefits, especially when you go after that Medicaid program, that is really an uphill battle. Going back to this budget for a second, I noticed that one of the pieces that they peel back in the budget agreement, in the framework that they passed last night, and President Trump is going to sign this morning, is the Independent Payment Advisory Board. That is a provision of the Affordable Care Act that is supposed to kick in if Medicare spending growth hits a certain target. It's, as you'll remember, what Sarah Palin maligned as a death panel. And there's opposition from both parties. Both had voted in the past to try to peel it back. Now they do it here successfully. But that's the point of hypocrisy, that you can't on one hand argue about these out-of-control spending programs that they call entitlements, other call earned benefits, that they're blowing up our budget, that we need to make sure they're in check, that's the only way we can sustain our budget, our economy. And then on the other hand, turn around and undo a key cost control provision that's designed to keep that program in check. No, that's exactly right. I mean, there, there's hypocrisy at every level, right? The other great hypocrisy, um, it, it comes also from Speaker Paul Ryan, um, who has been trying to rebrand his his slash and burn agenda as something that he's now calling workforce development. And for folks who are listening, I'm putting huge, yeah, massive what does that scare mean? quotes. Workforce development. Well, it's, it's, I want to be developed. Yeah, and, and you want to be in the workforce, right? Sounds great. Sounds like puppies and rainbows. How can you be against workforce development? Well, that's what Paul Ryan is banking on, right? Actually, last uh, week when the Republicans were having their retreat at the luxury resort Greenbrook of stakes while they talked about how they could end Meals on Wheels, right? Paul Ryan was was actually trying to convince his colleagues in Congress, and including Leader McConnell, why it's a good idea to try to cut these programs, even though Republicans learned the hard way last year how popular Medicaid is. It was in many ways Medicaid that actually saved the Affordable Care Act. It's yeah. so popular. And he said, guys, 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 I, it's just that we need to come up with a better buzzword. And we actually saw some of his colleagues agreeing with him that uh, Mark Walker, the chair of the Republican Study Committee, the far right uh, entity in the in the House of Representatives, saying, oh, yeah, 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 just need a new buzzword. That's what it is. And Paul Ryan said, I've got it, guys. It's workforce development. And that is the new code for uh, taking away health insurance and food and housing and more from people who can't find work or get enough hours at their job. And that's the new language that we're hearing this administration and Republicans in Congress, like Speaker 
filmmaker Paul Ryan using as they try to put a new shade of lipstick on the same unpopular pig. We've also seen it come out of Trump's administration through Seema Verna, who runs Medicaid and Medicare. Um, and, and she's been describing this heartless new policy that Trump announced earlier this month or last month um, of, of taking away people's Medicaid if they can't find a job. Yeah, these are these work requirements that states can adopt. How do they work? That's exactly right. So, Because that's the, happening now. That, and many people don't know that uh, this administration, through CMS, through the Department of Health and Human Services, can, by just uh, executive authority, implement these, allow states to implement these kinds of changes and change Medicaid right now without Congress having to act. Now, there's going to be some real questions as to whether the administration has actually overreached, mm. whether they had this legal authority, and there are lawsuits underway challenging that. If I had to look into my crystal ball, I'd say those lawsuits are successful. But in this <laughs> moment, um, we are... It's a dangerous, that's a dangerous road to go down. But it go ahead. I can, as a recovering lawyer, Igor, Igor I can, I can make enough. some prognostications about legality. Okay. Thank you. I, I believe I am qualified. <laughs> uh, no, but, but in all seriousness, the, um, the policy that we're now watching play out is Trump announced in January, that for the first time in the Medicaid program's 50-plus year history, he would allow states to take away Medicaid from people who can't find a job, get enough hours at work, are facing barriers to work. That's the new policy. And we're watching states actually adopt this policy. Kentucky and Indiana are the first two. Um, a whole, uh, nearly a dozen are already uh, 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 seeking this permission or, or thinking about it. Um, and so what that actually means is that, say you're Pounding the pavement looking for work. You are out there putting in resumes, job applications everywhere you can. Doesn't matter, not good enough. You are now at risk of losing your Medicaid, which is incredibly counterproductive when you think about it, because taking away someone's health insurance isn't going to help them find work any faster. But that's what President Trump uh, is is now trying to make the law of the land. Um, and that is what Speaker Paul Ryan and Trump's whole administration is trying to rebrand uh, with sort of Orwellian language as about helping move people from, quote unquote, welfare to work. It's BS. People need to not fall for it. It's just a wolf in sheep's clothing. But it really is consistent with all the other hypocrisy that you've been talking about. Well, it also feeds into this notion that the population that benefits from Medicaid, mostly Medicaid is what they focus on, is like this lazy, don't want to work, just want to kind of live off the government dole. But that doesn't actually reflect what the Medicaid population looks like. Many of them are already working. No, that's exactly right. This is really part of a concerted effort to try to reinforce myths about programs like Medicaid and the people that they help in an effort to try to tank their popularity to make them easier to cut. That's what this is yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Most people who receive Medicaid are actually already working. And the folks who are Medicaid recipients who aren't currently working, who are working age, they're, they're by and large students. They're caregivers. They're retirees. Uh, they're, they're people who um, have disabilities or serious illnesses. That's the population uh, uh, that Trump is going after as supposed freeloaders. Uh, so as we look towards the budget on Monday, President Trump's budget, what should we keep an eye out for in terms of pieces that he's going to try to uh, implement in order to go after these programs because it's clear that they're probably not going to do a big push like they did with uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act to like, you know, re grandly reform Medicaid. But there are ways they can chip at it kind of piece by piece. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think that people need to not 
uh, uh, fall for the messaging that we're hearing from a lot of leaders in Washington that, oh, that stuff is off the table. What they've decided to do is in, instead of putting neon lights around what they're trying to do, the threats are a lot more diffuse. They're sort of harder to track. And yeah. so that's actually, in a lot of ways, more nefarious, right? Because it's harder not, to organize it's around. harder to organize yeah. around. It's, it's harder to write about if you're a reporter. It's not a single bill moving through Congress, right, like we saw with the Affordable Care Act, like we saw um, repeal, like we saw with uh, with the tax legislation. So um, what we're actually watching is, in many ways, this sort of two-front attack. We've got Trump going after Medicaid every way he can by fiat, right, over the wishes of the American people, which were so strongly voiced during the health care debate last year with folks rising up in the streets saying, hands off my Medicaid, hands off my health care. And so what he's done, in addition to these so-called work requirements that we were just talking about, is he's also now talking about instituting something that I don't think I could come up with a more heartless policy if I tried. It's lifetime limits on Medicaid coverage. Mm. If you are a cancer patient... We got patient, rid of them in the ACA for private insurance, by exactly the way. Exactly right, yeah. because they were impor- it was important protections for people, right? We don't want to say uh, to someone who's a cancer patient who needs chemo, sorry, the clock is ticking. Uh, you just ran out of health insurance and, and you know, push them in their, their wheelchair out into the street, right? Um, that's exactly what this policy is going to do if he moves forward with it. That's his latest attack on Medicaid by fiat, recognizing that it, it's going to be easier for him to take matters into his own hands um, than it is to, to try to wait for Congress to be able to pass legislation. But can that he can do through executive action? I am anticipating legal challenges there as well if he moves forward and actually approves state waiver requests state to do this. That the... He's trying to use the same backdoor mechanism that he used with work requirements. It seems really wonky and technical because it is, but it's that by intention. He's hoping people don't notice what he's doing, and he's hoping um, that it's something that is going to stand up in court. These caps, which the argument that I remember from, you know, covering healthcare for a long time is that if people have more skin in the game, they will take better care of themselves and they will cost less healthcare dollars to the government. Is that what they're using for this as well? Is that this is uh, not only is this going to obviously reduce healthcare spending for those states, but it's also going to encourage people to be healthier, to uh, spend healthcare dollars more wisely, because now there's there's a cap that they can't go past. I think that's probably the alleged argument yeah. here, right? But it, it, it doesn't even pass muster with a lot of Republicans, right? You've got uh, the head of health care under George H.W. Bush coming out and saying uh, very vocally in response to Trump's announcement, this is really heartless. I would never have advised uh, the president I worked for to do something like this. And a lot of other Republicans are coming out and saying something similar. So really, really, really heartless stuff, but all nakedly an attempt to shrink a popular program um, um, all to pay for the, the tax cuts for the millionaires and corporations that they passed last year. Well, Rebecca Vallis, she is the host of Off Kilter, the Off Kilter podcast. She's on Twitter at Rebecca Vallis. Thank you so much. Thanks, we, Igor. I feel like we really broke it down. I, I think it's a dumpster fire, and we did our best. <laughs> I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. 
And while you're there, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show, go ahead and hit subscribe. Join that chat in the right hand panel of the page. And tell us what you think on Twitter at BP Show or at Igor Volsky. I'm Igor Volsky, by the way, not Bill Press, in case you're wondering what's going on here. And I'm joined now by Eliza Collins. She's the congressional reporter at USA Today on Twitter at Eliza Collins One. Is that because you're the first one? Uh, it's because Eliza Collins was you're taken. The second one. It's a little <laughs> the confusing. One, you see. Yeah, I know. Also number one. Also yeah. number one. Right. That's really what that's. that's really what it what it comes down to. See, when I when I looked on Twitter for Igor Volsky, nobody had that. You got so you they got had. That one I had no problem. I had no problem with that at all. Um, let's talk a bit about the budget deal that we saw pass in the morning of the early morning hours of today, um, and then I want to kind of have a little maybe back and forth with you on your story. Uh, in USA Today, Ivanka Trump teams up with conservatives to push Democratic themes. This is something she's been trying to do now for the whole first year of yeah. her uh, father's administration. And I wonder if she's going to be successful and how she's doing it. You went on a trip with her to South Carolina. I did. Is that right? Yeah. And so I'd love to hear about that experience. But first, let me get your sense of where the politics are now with this budget deal, because you suddenly have conservative Republicans who for years have told us that the deficit's a real problem. It's mm -hmm. going to blow up our budget. It's going to hurt our military. They insisted that everything in the Obama years had to be paid for, had to reduce the deficit. Now, after it's a huge, they, spending, it's bill. A huge spending bill that they, that they passed last night. And of course, in December, when they passed the tax bill, that would add one point five trillion dollars to the deficit. So what's happened to these mm, deficit hawks in Congress? Well, uh, there are about 70 of them that are still deficit hawks. They voted against this bill. Uh, I think there are two things at play here. One is that I think that this showed that deficit Hawks, at least on spending, lost some of their power in negotiating with someone like Paul Ryan. And it used to be a deficit hawk as well, we'll remember. Right. Yeah. I, yes. I had many conservative sources over the last couple of days send me an old Politico story of Paul Ryan complaining about John Boehner uh, doing a big spending the deal. good old days. So they, they would say, presented with no comment. <laughs> yes, and I'm exactly. like, that is a comment by just sending me that link. But it was very much circulating. Uh, yeah, so this spending deal is huge. Um, I'm sure you've been talking about it all morning. But basically, $400 billion. Um, the big thing here is it boosts military spending, but it also boosts domestic spending pretty much equally. Um, and that's a big deal. Because Republicans didn't want to do that, and they did it. And then it, money for opioids and veterans and infrastructure and all kinds of things. And it's $400 billion, and that is a lot of money. So what are these conservatives thinking? Like, how do they square the fact that I guess they're, like, on some level, like, genuinely concerned about the deficit and have been for years— how did they square voting for this thing? Okay. Like, what did they tell you? So the far, far, far right, there were, I think, I don't know the exact number, but like around 70 people who voted against this. They say, we can't square voting for this. The rest of them, basically, and the argument that was being presented, so what I've been told from lawmakers, is that if you care about the military, get on board. Mm. with this bill. And, and that's what the far right guys were very frustrated about because they were saying care about the military but we're not going to vote for this bill and we don't want to be portrayed as someone who doesn't yeah 
But apparently the argument in these meetings was like, this boosts military funding. And if you are a Republican, who we run on the military, a lot of our voters are in the military, get on board. And there were a lot of Republicans who for years have complained about the deficit who plugged their nose and got on board. So, okay, to be clear, (laughs) then what you're explaining is that their rationale is it's okay to spend dollars on the military, even sending them more dollars than the military requested. That's okay. But spending money on things like children's health care insurance, community health clinics, opium um, addiction uh, reduction treatment, that's what's problematic. And that's what they had to hold their nose on and vote on. But do they so then do they not see the military spending as spending or is it like essential spending and so it doesn't really count i don't understand yeah it's an interesting thing that we've seen the far right guys and let's talk about the freedom caucus because they're an easy group there's like 36 of them ish um in the past year they have become more open to more military spending um, but holding the line on other spending, which was not necessarily their position before. Their position before, and I think someone like Rand Paul, who held up the bill last night, is position, and some of the true libertarians' position is don't raise spending at all. Yeah, don't go past the caps. Right. Um, and that is sort of the pure libertarian idea. The new idea, and I don't know how much has to do with President Trump, wanting to bolster the military. Some of it really could just have to do with, you know, North Korea, and there's all sorts of threats right now, and people are feeling a little bit scared, and they want to bolster things. Um, They've shifted, and they wanted to raise military spending, and there wasn't really, at least when I talked to these guys, who we talked to a lot, there wasn't, like, a number, like, let's raise it a little bit and stop here. They didn't set their own caps. They wanted to raise it. Um... And they did not want to raise domestic spending. Or if they were going to raise domestic spending, which they acknowledge probably would happen, they wanted to do it a very small amount, far less than was in this bill. Okay. I will accept that explanation. <laughs> I will not like it. And I will, I will also just point out that for Rand Paul, and I've been saying this all show, and I'm just going to say it again, for Rand Paul to be up there on the Senate floor holding up the spending bill that, of course, eventually passed. To complain about the deficit and how worried he is about the spending. The fact that he didn't do the same thing when the tax bill was coming up for a vote and that tax bill blew $1.5 trillion hole in the deficit, to me, frankly, is kind of astounding. And I know his explanation is, well, those are tax cuts and this is spending. The effect is the same. They both add to the deficit. And I pushed back when I was talking to conservatives yesterday, I'd say, you guys aren't going to vote for this budget bill because you say it adds $1 trillion to the deficit. The tax bill added the same or more. Well, what do they tell you? They are similar to Rand Paul. They basically say that, one, they don't necessarily believe the estimates because they don't think it okay. takes. Well, then I don't believe the estimates <laughs> of the spending either. I mean, they don't. They think that it. they weren't taking into account how much the economy would grow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And two, they feel, which I do think this part is um, accurate by talking to nonpartisan mm-hmm. people, say the same. This bill sort of enters a new era on spending because it, it it's huge. It raises the caps. It stops the debt limit. And so all of these things conservatives have been railing against or things like that they were kind of willing to 
planning to hold hostage in the future, like a debt, a separate debt limit, though, are gone. They're law. They're they're put aside. And so they, at least with the tax bill, were told there would be spending reforms in the future. And now with this bill, they feel like there's no way. You know, I want to ask you about the congressional politics of this because uh, and the politics in districts as members run for reelection, mm-hmm. because I don't think the filing deadlines have passed just yet for a lot of these races. Correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong on that one. No, so still coming. how are how is this going to play in these conservative districts with these members who are all of a sudden voting for this thing? Are Tea Party grassroots kind of voters going to be upset about this? Have we heard them? What are the Tea Party groups and like the con- the yeah. conservative think tanky people? What are they saying about this bill? They're going to be pissed off. Um, perfect example. I talked to Free uh, the Freedom Works Vice President yesterday. They're very against this sort of spending. Um, came out very strongly. I his name's Jason Pye, and he basically said to put it to say we got screwed is an understatement. And mm. then he used all sorts of other choice language um, that I could not print. But (laughs) he said that at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night, they sent an email out to their supporters and said, if you don't like this bill, use our system to respond to a lawmaker. And by, we talked at maybe noon yesterday, by that point, 151,000 people had used the system to tell their lawmaker they didn't like the bill. Here's the thing. These people, so the base is mad. Yeah. And that is of concern for going um, into a midterm, I imagine. Oh. It is concern going into a midterm, but the seats that they need to keep and the seats to keep their majority are not these deep red seats. These deep red seats, whether or not the base is mad about spending, uh, they'll probably stay red. Mm, okay. So, but so these the suburban districts yeah. that they where maybe Hillary won or were very close, they're more likely to support this bill. They're certainly not going to su- say. Um, shut down the government over a bipartisan bill. And so I think the calculation for a lot of these Republicans, especially in tough districts, is this is a bipartisan bill. It's really hard to have an ad against you to say you voted against opioid funding or veterans. Um, And so they voted for it. All right. Let's do Dreamers quickly. And then Ivanka, I promise. What is happening with Dream and DACA? This uh, did not include any provisions Mm -hmm. to help the Dreamers and the DACA recipients. Hundreds of them are losing status every single day. There's going to be a debate next week on the Senate floor that doesn't appear to go anywhere. Paul Ryan has not made any kind of commitment about bringing that measure if something were to pass in the Senate to the House. Feels like we're nowhere. Yeah, I do think that the Senate thing is important because and I did I was part of a group of reporters that had to sit down with Jeff Flake on this yesterday. And as we know, Jeff Flake is retiring, so he doesn't really care what anyone in his party thinks. Um, And he's working with Democrats on this. And he's from Arizona. um, And so this is an issue he really cares about. And he pointed out that this is a big deal that Mitch McConnell committed to having an open process because, A, there hasn't been a time in years when they put something on the floor and have no idea where it's going. And he said that could be a great thing for Dreamers or it could be a bad thing. Um, And he's like, I really don't know, but... It is not something coming down from leadership or something being blocked, you know, bipartisan bill that like similar to what's happening in the House where Paul Ryan's saying, I'm not putting anything to the floor unless Trump supports it. McConnell's like, go. And this is not a normal McConnell tactic. True. And Flake pointed that out. Flake said McConnell likes to do leadership negotiations and then put something on the floor. 
How optimistic is Flake that this process that McConnell is going to start uh, premiering next week on the floor, that it's going to produce any kind of result that's going to be bipartisan in nature, given the fact that there are hardliners in the Senate, people like Tom Cotton, ugh, who are going to throw poison pills into yeah. this thing because they don't want any kind of solutions. They're fine with these dreamers being deported. Flake described it as it depends on the day. Oh. Um, so, okay, well, so let's all cross our fingers. It's a yeah. good day, right? Good. Uh, and, that's, nice. and that's how President Trump handles immigration, right? Some days he is all for the dreamers and some days he's less so. Um, I think he's feeling semi-optimistic and someone like Lindsey Graham, also Republican, but for you know citizenship for the, this group, because there is a group of like 25 lawmakers that meet pretty much every day on this bipartisan group larger than the normal Blake. Is it still in Susan Collins' office? Yes, How with the talking stick. Office? It's tight. I've heard they oh, have to like tight. sit on front, like okay. on top of. Okay, a little um, uncomfortable. But so they meet every day about this. So there is a large enough group, like a fourth of the Senate, agrees in a lot of this in principle. Yeah, that doesn't mean that a poison pill amendment can't get attached. Right. Um, and I think that's the real fear. I do think that there is a genuine hope in the Senate, which tends to be more moderate, um, that there's. Or a genuine agreement that there needs to be something done, even I think an agreement actually more towards the citizen citizenship aspect of this. That is um, giving these DACA recipients yes. a pathway to citizenship. No, and not just like legal protections yeah. on a renewable basis. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is, if they need 60 votes, there's 49 Democrats, there's certainly like 12 Republicans that agree. Um, and if there really is, you know, McConnell's not going to block anything, they could come to an agreement. Now, the chances of that agreement being brought yeah. to the House floor are totally up in the air. And why is Paul Ryan doing this? Is it because his speakership would be mm -hmm. jeopardized if he were to just bring it to a floor and say, like McConnell is open vote? Yeah, totally. Even honestly. though that would pass most likely it in would the pass. House. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Because there are certainly enough moderate Republicans to join Democrats. Paul Ryan made a promise to the, back to the Freedom Caucus. Uh, made a promise before he came, became speaker that he would not bring up any immigration legislation that did not have the majority of the Republican Party um, on board with it. And the majority is more than the 40 or 50 moderate Dems that would support this. And so Paul Ryan's going to have to make a calculation if um, he wants to basically he wants to piss off more than half the Republican Party. And in terms, his speakership is in jeopardy. He's already pissed them off with the spending deal, so he might just move forward and say, all right, let's just start doing these oh, bills. Oh, that's, that's an optimistic I'm take. My, well, there's the the thought that Paul Ryan might be a little bit exhausted by being yeah. speaker. Um, and that is circulating Congress, but as of now, he's definitely saying. See, that to me, though, is such a, the, the agreement that he made with, with the conservative members there is such a perversion of democracy because they represent such a small constituency. And the fact that they're holding hostage this bill that the overwhelming, well, not the overwhelming, but the majority of House members would support and the constituents they represent you know, would in, then in turn would support is kind of crazy to me, frankly. I know it's it had started with Boehner and now he's doing right. it, but I will make another point, which Ryan's office would be very mad if I didn't make. In that, what is <laughs> the point? Of, <laughs> what is the point of having a bill brought to the floor that passes the House that the tr president doesn't sign, the president vetoes? Now, the thought, and this is Flake's thought, is it if you can get enough people to pass and you really put it on Trump's desk, is he really not going to sign it? 
And I think that's a fair thought and depends on how Trump's feeling that day. I do think it's also a fair thought to say if Trump is saying he's not going to sign something, why would you not put a bill to the floor that he's going to sign? Yeah, and given how unpredictable Trump is, I mean, who knows what he's going to do? Flake says Tuesday Trump or Thursday Trump. (laughs) Okay, Ivanka Trump, you went to South Carolina with Ivanka. Tell me about that trip and what was she doing? So we went to South Carolina. We did like a whirlwind day trip. We started at like 8 in the morning in D.C. and we flew coach american airlines oh. by the bathroom okay not spirit though <laughs> no not spirit <laughs> that that's hard that's by the way from a previous segment where peter the producer here told us that spirit forced somebody to uh, to flush the their hamster, hamster down I the saw toilet that, this that's morning. The, that was awful yeah. um i i really had a lot of questions american airlines that. would not do that uh right and, and she and, had no hamster with her so we're fine Right, yeah. right. No hamsters, at least that I like. They weren't. <laughs> that in you her could purse. see. Yeah. Um, so we flew. We flew to South Carolina. She had an event with Tim Scott, who is South Carolina senator, Republican. Where it was a very friendly crowd. It was Republican woman, so that's definitely Ivanka's crew. Um, and they were excited about the tax bill, and it was a Q and A, basically about the tax bill and about being a member of the administration and yada yada yada. Uh, and then we came home. And so the I was not covering the event. I was basically just spending the day with her, observing how she interacted with people. What's and she like, Ivanka, behind behind the you know, different be, than her dad? A, yeah, um, <laughs> I think is the best way to put it. She is graceful, poised, very polite. Um, you know, she's she grew up in the public eye. Um, she grew up as a celebrity, and she's also was a businesswoman, so she knows sort of how to interact in, like, everyday situations. Yeah. People, we went to a coffee shop before the event, and people mobbed her, like, oh. because it's South Carolina. It's yeah. very red. It's, and, but I wasn't, I was surprised that there was not any pushback. Like, people were so excited to see her and told her they were praying for her, and they loved her dad, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and she took every picture, and she was, you know, and they'd walk away and be like, oh, my God, she's so nice. But I talked to the people after. And my story is basically the idea that here's this person who came from New York, this liberal Democrat um, or Democratic donor. I think she was an independent, but she donated to Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer. And she had all these ideas. She came and she was like paid family leave and equal pay for equal work and affordable child care. And Trump ran on those ideas. Um Ran on those ideas among a million other ideas, I should say. <laughs> they were not his top line but, campaign right, promises. But he did mention them. Which yeah. was, I remember being at the RNC and um, hearing her speech and everyone was like, are you at the wrong, the wrong convention? <laughs> um, but, but he did. He, he made a point to talk about them. And him and Marco Rubio were talking about them. And she came to D.C. and was like, all right, uh, Democrats, let's team up. And Democrats... We're like, no, we don't like your dad, and um, we have our own ideas, and what you're calling for is not sufficient. And so they've talked to her, and they appreciate that she's bringing it up. They're very clear about that. But um, Democrats have largely avoided working with her, and so she's turned to Republicans and conservative Republicans to try to convince them to get on board. What are the differences in policy, because there are some similarities in these Mm -hmm. issues, but what are the main differences that Democrats cite that her family policies are insufficient? So there's there's one misconception that I learned just being with her for the day is that she, the budget plan that Trump put out has a paid family leave plan in it. And that's what everyone refers to when they refer to Ivanka's plan. Uh, 
I learned that that is actually, as the budget is, I guess, is not, um, they're not tied to that funding model or that time frame or whatever. They say it's just a, it's a flag in the ground. Like it uh-huh. means that we want, we okay, want paid Obama family used to say that. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, the president's budget is a flag right. in the ground because no yeah. one ever follows it. That's right. Um, so hers calls for six weeks and it is paid for by unemployment insurance, which, uh, Republicans have more issues with that than Democrats because or, um, because it, this tax structure in states could change and it could end up raising taxes. Okay. Democrats think six weeks is not enough. They want it to not just be new parents, but to be, you know, if your parent is old or sick. So more or, comprehensive. Yeah. So they want a larger plan and they would like it to be paid for um, with small payroll small contributions from employees and employers into a pool, basically. Um, And that's, like, the plan that we hear about, like, Senator Kristen Gillibrand and Rosa DeLauro. And that's – Democrats are pretty united on that front. So they say Ivanka's plan does not go far enough, and um, they don't – they have questions about the funding model. They're not, like, super opposed to that, but they like their plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now, because – Ivanka has not committed to their plan. She's now talking to Republicans about all sorts of plans, including something like deducting your Social Security money now to take 12 weeks off and then retiring 12 weeks later, um, which obviously Democrats hate that idea. Uh, And I actually imagine some moderate Republicans would hate that idea, too. But that's sort of the new Republican idea being floated that she says she's looking at. Okay, so I don't imagine that Ivanka sat down and personally designed the plan that she's promoting. So I'm curious, who is behind this plan that she has? Is it a conservative think tank? Is it some other kind of organization that's been pushing this kind of model? Or did she really sit down and decide, here's what I think would work best? The, Where did this the idea budget come proposal from? model? The proposal that, she, not the budget proposal, the proposal that she's pushing, this idea that you would take from unemployment and be able to use those dollars for payment. So that, that's the proposal on the budget. That's the um, budget proposal. Yeah. I'm not sure, like, who in the White House is pushing yeah. that. I mean, she's for sure been the face on that. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's not like immigration where you're like, oh, Stephen Miller. Right. Um, I don't know exactly. I do know that AEI and Brookings, so it's two mm-hmm. right and left think tanks. Well, Brookings. Centrist, I would C- argue. Okay, that right, it right. Yeah. But it's not like, we're not talking, Like you heritage. Know. And, right. Okay, fair. Came out with a plan that calls for a similar plan to hers, but eight weeks. Mm, okay. Um, and so I, that's she points to that. She says, and did you see that this bipartisan, these bipartisan think tanks back my plan and I'm open to eight weeks. Um, and she says she's open to 12 weeks, but she's realistic. And this is Republican majorities and a Republican president. And I'd like to point out that while they are talking about this idea, it hasn't really moved. Well, what's your sense of is there any ability for these two sides to come together, actually come up with something that she could champion, that her father would sign, or, as some have alleged, that she's kind of co-opting these traditionally democratic issues uh, in order to score some political points, that this is more of a political play than actually an effort to get something done? I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there's, I really think there's both. 
Uh, I think she acknowledges. I think yeah. she acknowledges that it is a politically popular thing to do. Um, and it was interesting when I was talking to these people at that coffee shop. These con- someone described themselves as a far right conservative to me, and then told me in the next breath that he thought Ivanka could be president, and then in the next breath said he loved. I said, well, some of our policies are not traditional far-right conservative policies. I said, I love it. I love the families. Like, I love supporting families. <laughs> so, as long um, as they're not immigrant families, I'm good with it. So she, um, I think, acknowledges that, like, she offers something that maybe her dad does not. Some of the other administration members do not. I don't think that there's going to be a deal to be done with Democrats, especially as we get closer to midterms and 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is twofold. I think Democrats, Kristen Gillibrand might want to run in 2020. And why would she let President Trump sign her paid leave plan and then he can run on that? Yeah, hard to say. Uh, did you ask Ivanka that question? Does she have ambitions for higher political... I mean, she has no political office now, right. so does she have ambitions for political office? What does she say to that? She dismisses it. I mean, she, you can't say that you want to run for right. president when your dad's <laughs> right. president. Yes. Uh, you know, she says she loves what she's doing now and blah, blah, blah. Um, the answer that people always give when they don't want to. But she certainly seems to be cementing some sort of future. Working on that brand. Eliza Collins, she's congressional reporter at USA Today at Eliza Collins 1. I'm Igor Volsky. Igor Volsky, thanks so much. I don't know why I'm hitting the table so hard. Thanks for watching, for listening. Uh, Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. This is The Bill Press Show.